Well, I want to invite you to turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 as we continue this really important study. I love this section that we're in, especially regarding the body of Christ. He just got wet, I guess. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read the entire section that we're going to begin to, to broaden our study around. Um, over the last few weeks, we've centered our attention around the first couple of verses in this new section in chapter 12, starting in verse 12, but we're going to kind of broaden it now and, and really get into this larger body metaphor that the Apostle Paul uses for some, I think, very important and timely, and I find to be very helpful instruction uh, for life in the body of Christ. So let me read uh, the entire section. We're going to read verses 12 all the way through verse 26 in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make, any less, not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? Where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require." But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, but there, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. As is Paul's practice, as we've noted on a number of occasions as we've worked our way through this letter, even when the Apostle Paul diverts into things like analogy or metaphor, he always comes back to a very straightforward principle. And this he does very directly at the end of this section when he says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. You have this language that's talking about various parts of the body, and then all of a sudden he drops that major point of emphasis that's running through this entire section right there at the end. It's interesting when you come to this particular passage, and in specific, when you think about the nature of the body as it's used as a metaphor, and even how we have been sort of, I don't want to say necessarily trained to think, but, but how our, our sort of the trajectory of Western thought uh, over a number of centuries, has influenced the thinking of the modern mind in this area of the relationship between mind and body, or the relationship between the spiritual and the physical, the immaterial and the material. And really, you can trace a lot of this thinking, at least in its more 
contemporary manifestations back to uh, a French philosopher and scientist and mathematician named René Descartes. This particular point of interest for me proved to me this week once again why, among many other reasons, I'm quite sure, why it was in the Lord's kindness that he did not call me into uh, being a teaching pastor. Because what I find myself struggling with all the time is getting totally distracted by some point that I'm drawn to in my study, and I nerd out on that, and then I find myself not getting back to the... I'm, I'm like the... What's the, the, with the dog with squirrel? What's that, that? Yeah, the cartoon or whatever it is. I'm, I'm that dog. I'm, I'm very easily distracted. So I got a little bit distracted on this whole um, influence of uh, Rene Descartes and how, not so much because of the, the content of his philosophy or his works and not so much uh, because I was fascinated by the history of this figure, but more importantly, the implications of what, he, what, what his way of thinking, what he was trying to accomplish how that influences us even today, how that might influence us as we come to studies like this in 1 Corinthians, where you have this first century letter written into a Greco-Roman context and utilizing uh, an emphasis upon body imagery, physical body imagery, and how easy it is for us to possibly get this confused. And I would say that not necessarily just in the way that we understand what the Apostle Paul is teaching, as he's using this metaphor in particular, but more importantly, the working out of these principles. Uh, because, of, because our thinking is influenced by what I would uh, echo from Descartes, this, this mind-body dichotomy, this mind-body division, so much of our, our thinking is influenced by that. We can bring that divided thinking, that kind of compartmentalized thinking, to our understanding of our part in the body of Christ, that we bring compartmentalized ways of viewing life and reality and processing things and drawing conclusions about things. The reasoning process that we might go through can be very sort of compartmentalized and very deductive in nature. And so we bring that kind of, of thinking uh, even to a text like this. It's interesting, uh, a, a gentleman by the name of Dale Martin wrote a book a number of years ago entitled The Corinthian Body. He actually took up this, this emphasis of Paul's on the body as a metaphor for the body of Christ or the church or God's people in Christ. He wrote an entire book on it. And there's some fascinating material there. I want to kind of read a little bit about it, as, particularly as it relates to uh, this, this, uh, this line of thinking that was sort of brought to bear in prominent ways by Rene Descartes. Uh, this author, Dale Martin, says, a, de- a devout Catholic, Descartes sought a scientific methodology that could be used to study the world without threatening the church's claim to exclusive jurisdiction in religious matters such as the reality of the divine, the revelation of scripture, the possibility of volition, and the immortality of the soul. What what was motivating Descartes, in other words, was how can I separate what is the domain of God's stuff, the domain of 
God ideas, the domain of church teaching and instruction, from the pursuits of science and mathematics and philosophy. Like he intentionally was trying to find a pathway to be able to do that. And maybe, obviously I don't know what was in his heart or in his mind at the time, maybe it was a, a, a noble motivation, but it certainly had an intent of preserving his life. He certainly didn't want to find himself by virtue of his teaching and his writing and that thing on the wrong side of the magisterium of the church. And he certainly did not want to find himself being called out as a heretic. So he began to sort of write about this, these two different spheres, these two different realms, if you will. Uh, Dale Martin goes on to say, Descartes sought a realm of reality distinct from that of revelation and the divine, a realm that could be analyzed rationally, that is, without interference from the truths of revelation. We might excusably exaggerate a bit and say that Descartes invented the category of quote-unquote nature as a closed, self-contained system over against which he could oppose mind, soul, the spiritual, the psychological, and the divine. In fact, Descartes quite self-consciously redefined nature to exclude those aspects of reality that he believed could not and should not be studied in terms of physical mechanism. So in other words, there are two different distinct realms that are not overlapping in nature. There is the realm of the supernatural, the realm of the spiritual, the realm of the immaterial, and there is the realm of the physical, the realm of nature, he would call it. And these are independent, um, independent spheres, independent realms. The writer goes on to say that, uh, as, as Descartes states in his meditations on the first philosophy, quote, nature is here taken in a narrower sense than when it signifies the sum of all things which God has given me. Seeing that in that meaning, the notion comprehends much that belongs only to the mind, to which I am here to be understood as referring when I use the term nature, it is precisely Descartes' rejection of the sum of all things that was the normal ancient meaning of the Greek term physis in nature. So in other words, Descartes' idea went directly counter to what the Greeks in first century Corinth would have understood the body to be speaking of. There is no separation between the, the physical and the spiritual realm in its, in its essential essence, in other words. I know I'm getting a little bit... This is what I'm telling you. I nerded out. I nerded out on this. You guys are going, good for you. But he, 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 this writer goes on to sort of elaborate on this. And I'm going to get to the, to the point here as it relates to Paul's writing here in 1 Corinthians. He says, by constructing the category of nature to include only those parts of the universe that could be observed scientifically, quote-unquote, Descartes left an entire realm in need of a new category, hence the necessity of the, quote, supernatural. You have the realm of nature, and then you have the realm of supernature. A realm taken by Descartes to be real enough but one that cannot be analyzed by the rational means used to analyze the newly invented physical world. So in other words, when it comes to things pertaining to this supernatural realm, you cannot employ a rationalistic, 
reasonable process of your mind to analyze it. That's what I mean by separating these things. And it's, it's, it, become, it has become a very prominent underlying sort of philosophical, unconscious philosophical presupposition of many, many people, even us at different points in time, where we divide things up. When you go, for example, into the New Testament, you hear the Apostle Paul say things like, in him we live and move and have our being. We were saved by him and for him. In him all things hold together. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was in the beginning and everything was made by him and not anything that was made was made by... I'm getting that all out right, but you know what I'm saying, right? All things were made by him. Nothing was made apart from him. In him all things hold together. So all throughout the New Testament you have this complete um, sort of unity between what, what Descartes would call this physical and this immaterial realm. This foundation of understanding the essential nature of spiritual life as the animating feature and the informing component of physical reality is what you find in the scripture and in the revelation of God. The writer goes on to say, what is important in all this is not Descartes' body-soul dualism, rather... It is his construction of that dualism as an ontological dualism. That is, these two things, by their very substances, partook of radically different realms of reality. And his linking of it to a larger dichotomous system that included several other categories. On one side were body, matter, nature, and the physical. On the other were or mind, non-matter, the supernatural, and the spiritual or psychological. Though it still influences many modern minds, this was a system of which the ancients knew nothing. Descartes' radical separation of mind from body, his mechanistic view of the body and volitional, and volitional view of the mind, his cloistering of nature as a separate ontological realm from soul, God, mind, or will was in service of his interest in constructing a unified scientific method without exposing himself to accusations of heresy. Unfortunately, though, unfortunately, excuse me, though helpful for the development of science and modern thought, Descartes' dichotomy has misled countless readers in their reading of ancient authors, Paul especially. The Pillar New Testament commentary says this, Paul is not the first to use the body as a metaphor to explain the nature of a social group. In fact, it was a very common rhetorical device. However, Paul's use of it is significantly different from the way it was typically employed. And then the writers of the Pillar New Testament commentary quote from Dale Martin's book. Dale Martin points out that, quote, whereas traditionally the body analogy is invoked to solidify an unquestioned status hierarchy, Paul's rhetoric questions that hierarchy. So in other words, this whole use of body metaphor in in the ancient world was very, very common. It was just misused to sort of um, actually gain hierarchical uh, status and power over plebes, over servants. In other words, in the same way that you have parts of your body that are of a higher order, 
but they're all in need of one another. So, for example, you, lower servant in the, in the social strata, you know, you are, let's say, a foot, or you are, let's say, a hand, or some such like that. But the Senate, for example, is the head. And you don't know what you should do unless you have the head telling you what you should do. It's that kind of thing. So it was this, this effort to actually use the, the nature of differentiation in the body, but the interdependence of the body to gain power. And that's what was going on there. But there was no dichotomy there. There was no division between mind and body as a, as a way to understand it. It was deployed in the same way. When you come to the New Testament and you look at Paul's doctrine of the body of Christ, it's incredibly profound to think of it in a broader scope, in a broader sweep. And it really drives home what we're actually seeing here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and his use of this important body metaphor. And as we move forward in our text today, I, I want us to have, uh, I want us to be rooted very deeply, as, as deeply as we can be in this short period of time, rooted very deeply in our understanding of the significance of the spirits inspiring Paul's use to take what was a common metaphor used in the first century, but give it its actual meaning from the standpoint of the creator who created body and soul, from from the wisdom of the God who was inspiring the writing of the text in the first place. And when you go, for example, to Romans chapter 12, In verse 3, you see the Apostle Paul raising up this body metaphor there. And incidentally, it's in the context of him teaching on spiritual gifts there as well. He says in verse 3 of Romans chapter 12, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Right there at the jump, he's saying, this approach to thinking about the body is very different than what you're accustomed to. He starts off by saying, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. Don't think that because you're the head, you're the mind, that you're better than the foot, in other words. He says, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So, we though many are one body in Christ, and individually members of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. The Apostle Paul is just echoing the same kind of understanding that how, what, what God has done in bringing together his people into this body of Christ and, 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 a, and drawing a, an analogy of the actual physical body that God made and the way that God made it can't be lost on us. In other words, for us to really fully understand what the Apostle Paul is teaching and using this body metaphor to talk about the use of gifts and the way that we're to treat one another in the body in terms of body life, in terms of dynamic, unified, harmonious body life, the, the way that that all is to be understood is fundamental to how we understand the true nature of our body and our soul, the way God designed it as a unified one. That's the point. It's not just for us to understand that there's a hand that's different than the, the, the foot, but they're also working independent, interdependently with one another. 
It's that we are a unified whole. That's how God made us. There is no distinction between a person's body and a person's soul to say that it's sort of two different spheres of essence. A person's soul is the person in as much as the person's body is the person in the, in the physical realm. You go to 1 Corinthians and you see this. We talked about this when we studied chapter 10, verses 16 to 17, when talking about the Lord's Supper and our partaking of that, our participation in that. He says in verse 16 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, again, the Apostle Paul and his sort of doctrine of the body, he says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And then verse 17, because there is one bread, one, one body of Christ, one actual physical representation of, of God incarnate in the physical form of Christ, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So this participation in the body of Christ as being identified now as members of the body of Christ, there is a unity there that is of an essential nature. And we participate in it as we partake of the elements of communion. We, we symbolize our actual spiritual union with Christ in His incarnate, redemptive work on the cross. And so there is this essential and necessary unity even in our salvation in Christ, our identification with Christ in our salvation. You go to Ephesians, and Ephesians mentions the body significantly. But listen to chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering in you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and, wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. What about it? And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So that would, that would argue for the principle that we are only rightly related to the head, which is Christ, which, according to the Apostle Paul, should not be mistakable by the language that he used here. The nature of the descriptors that he uses to describe the resurrected Christ, seated at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. Any questions? No? Good. That's the head. And we are the body. We are not rightly related, in other words, to the head if we are not a part of the body. It's essential in our understanding of this. Further, in Ephesians chapter 2, Therefore remember that 
at one time, this is verse 11 of Ephesians, that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. This is now getting into these religious differences that were in view in, in, that, in that time. And he broke down the barrier between Jew and Gentile. And all are united in this one body. And then you have in Ephesians chapter 4, this reference to his own ministry and his own suffering being part of this. I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, the God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is what the Apostle Paul was willing to go to prison for. This is what the Apostle Paul was willing to be persecuted for, to be beaten with rods, to be stoned, to be left for dead. This, this is The body is what he was willing to do that for. And this is what he is saying should compel us toward how we act toward one another in all these virtues, humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Our understanding of what it means to be a part of the body of Christ, the thing that would compel someone like the Apostle Paul to give his very life both both in real time in terms of a gradual, progressive you know, beating of his body, but also ultimately in his final persecution and execution, for him to give himself to that, it's because he understood this. The depths of this identification as the body of Christ. One body in Christ. And that should compel us toward these virtues of, an, of, of action and engagement and attitude toward one another, if we understood it if we really were reflecting on what is true about it. In Ephesians, he goes on to talk about gifts there. He gave apostles and prophets and evangelists. This is later on in chapter 4. For the building up of the body, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Listen, you cannot grow in the depths of your spiritual life apart from your engagement with the body of Christ. It will not happen. It does not happen. It never will happen. I, was, I, was, I picked up a, a little clip from some uh, podcast or something. It was just sort of one of these passing by kinds of clips or reels or whatever. And the podcaster was asking the person they were interviewing this question. Do you think that it's essential 
for Christians to be a part of an actual organized church or not? The New Testament knows none of that kind of thinking. What the Apostle Paul just articulated, so much so is that necessary, that you will not grow. But you will be children who are tossed to and fro if you are not linked up with a local fellowship in the body of Christ under the head who is Christ. You will not be built up. You will not be joined and held together. You will not be equipped. You will not be working properly. That's what he says. Even in the context of marriage, Ephesians chapter 5, in this foundational organizing institution of society, he says in chapter 5, verse 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. He begins this whole metaphor of the use of the body in articulating the roles and responsibilities of husbands and wives in marriage, that you are to be a picture of this relationship of the head to the body, of Christ with his church. Your marriage is to give people testimony of the wonder of this dynamic of the body of Christ. And then he goes on in chapter 5 of Ephesians, verses 28 to 30. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Husbands, in order for you to love your wives, you have to have some understanding of what it means to be a part of Christ's body in the church and and what that love is. And care and nurture looks like as Christ cares for and nurtures and loves his bride, the church. Colossians repeats a lot of the same themes that we see in Ephesians. A lot of the same ideas and and points of emphasis are repeated in Colossians. I'm not going to go into any detail there, but there's a lot there that I could go into. The point of all this is that the Apostle Paul... Over and over and over again, I, I have here one, two, three, four. I have four different passages in Colossians that refer to all of this. Over and over and over again, the Apostle Paul is saying, the body of Christ, the body of Christ, the body of Christ, the body of Christ, how it informs your conduct and your attitudes toward one another, how it, how it defines your relationship with Christ as being the head of the body. How it compels those who are serving him to serve him even to the point of death on behalf of service of the body of Christ. So that it can be nourished and built up and strengthened. How our activity and our engagement and our participation is driven by this linked understanding. This depth of understanding. This conviction about what it means to actually be the body of Christ. On and on and on it goes all throughout the Apostle Paul's New Testament epistles. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that this this is a big deal. That's my summary point. This is a really, really big deal. This is a really important doctrinal matter for us as God's people in a local fellowship. That we understand deeply, profoundly, what is the body of Christ and therefore how that should compel us and inform us and convict us. So last week, we began to look at this ver- these passages, these verses, I should say, a little more closely. And we looked, first of all, at the observable diversity within the body. 
And this, this theme repeats over and over again. I, you, read, you heard me read from Romans, for example. It talks about that. For just as the body is one and has many members, you have this observable diversity. We talked about this. That This is Paul beginning with a simple observable fact that the body is made up of many parts in the same way that the physical body is clearly made up of many parts, so is the body of Christ. And that diversity within the body of Christ should be as obvious a characteristic as are the various distinct parts of a physical body. It's very straightforward. This is not some appeal to diversity as a good inherent of itself, but it is a call to us to recognize that diversity, when it is in unity in the body of Christ, is good, is to be held up is to be recognized as part of God's plan. But if it's absent this transcendent underlying principle of God's work, then it devolves into divisions. And that's what you see all throughout the Corinthian church as well. And then we looked at the essential and transcendent unity of the body, the essential and transcendent unity of the body. Verses 12, the second part of verse 12 And then through verse 13, And all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. This is talking about this necessary functional interdependence of all the parts of the body working together as one. In the same way that all the parts of the physical body work best when they are working in harmony and unity and in unison in an interdependent fashion. But there's also this transcendent unity that it has to do with the fact that we, by Christ, we have been baptized in the Spirit. So there is this transcendent reality that is, has established our unity. We are a unified body in Christ by the Spirit. That is a reality that is outside our control. It's independent of our actions It is not something that is done or pulled off or maintained or sustained by us. It is something that that God has done sovereignly through Christ and by the Spirit. And so this is a, a critical recognition for us that we see that unity in the Spirit completely eliminates the significance of common cultural distinctions of religion, ethnicity, and social status. And that's why we talked about last week how damaging all of these sort of imbibing of of godless sociological ideas and bringing those into the church and then laying them on top of actual people in the life of the church so that we begin to look out amongst ourselves and say, do we have enough people in our congregation that have this color of skin or are from this socioeconomic level? Do we have enough quote-unquote, marginalized people in our church. And we start counting heads and establishing sort of like motivations for ministry and outreach based upon external characteristics of people. And all throughout the New Testament, you have the Apostle Paul saying, we're breaking down those dividing walls. The last thing I would want you to do is to begin to look at one another and say, you know what, there's something about your external characteristics that makes you more valuable to our fellowship than it might otherwise be. What? 
Because you are a part of this particular ethnic group or because you're a part of this socioeconomic class, you know what? We're trying to increase our, our capacity or our sort of our, our balance of all of that. So because you are that, that makes you more valuable to us at this given time in the social ebb and flow of a fallen world. That so undermines the message of the Apostle Paul when it comes to unity in the body of Christ. And, and, and focusing on what actually matters. Right in the middle of that verse, chapters 12 and 13, it says, this applies to Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. That's an explicit reference to the Apostle Paul to say, if you, if you get focused on ethnic or religious divisions or, or socioeconomic, societal strata kinds of divisions as a point of of contention or a point of establishing your rights for this or that, you're missing the entire point. We are missing the entire point. There's an essential transcendent unity that is in the body of Christ. And it, it actually puts these other points of division, ethnicity, background, socioeconomic status, it puts those in their proper place. Well, today, as we continue to move through this and get more deeply into sort of the breakdown of this body metaphor that the Apostle Paul uses, we're going to quickly notice that he's just essentially unpacking these first two principles that we've talked about last week. He's just going to go into more detail or or sort of illustrate them more figuratively and elaborately as we move through this. Now, it's obvious, as we've already said, that in our first point, there is an observable diversity of gifts. There is an observable diversity of ethnic, cultural, and religious backgrounds, of individual temperaments even, and certainly of socioeconomic strata within the singular spiritual body of Christ. So, it's, it should be obvious to us at this point that for us to operate as though that were not true would be absurd. In other words, for us to operate as though that kind of observable diversity is not really existent or should not be a thing is absurd. But not only that, it should be obvious to us at this point that to make that point the point is equally absurd. To make diversity the main point is just as absurd as not recognizing what is patently obvious, and that is there are many members, many types, many gifts, many backgrounds, many ethnicities. To ignore that, to say that that is not a thing in the church is absurd, but to say it's the thing is also absurd. That's the point. Think of how ridiculous it would be, for example, in this school that we've been meeting in for the past 700 years. (laughs) Think of how ridiculous it would be that if a teacher in this school made the central focus in her class, the pointing out and the highlighting and the emphasizing to the students all the ways in which they need to see and know and understand that they are now at school and not at home. And so every lesson and every instruction had that point of emphasis, making sure you do understand you're at school and not at home. 
Do you see it? Do you understand it? Do you really comprehend what we're saying about the fact that right now you're in a classroom at school and you're not at home? Of course, that would assume that the key, for example, to a student learning algebra lies solely in their grasp of the differences between their living room and the classroom or some such absurd, you know, formation. And this is obviously an absurd analogy, but let's press it a bit further. Consider for a moment how a student's learning of algebra would likely be hindered if he or she did not take note of the obvious distinction between being at home versus being in a classroom. I can tell you the thought crosses teachers' minds quite regularly. This is not, you know, this is not your couch. Sit up. Right? Listen, stop, stop acting like it's you know, time for you to get on your, your gaming system. I mean, this time to focus on whatever, right? So there is the need for a student to recognize, I'm in a classroom right now. I'm not in my living room at home. I'm not lounging, in other words. And not only that, but likely if a child in a classroom did not recognize that distinction, they would probably hinder the learning of other students in the classroom as well, as that tends to go. So this, this diverse nature of the body of Christ is a general good to be acknowledged and accepted insofar as it is contributing to a greater purpose. That's the point. Pillar New Testament commentary says this, It is important to stress that the body metaphor or analogy is not used to impose uniformity upon the church. There is unity in plurality, but not uniformity. Individual integrity remains. Indeed, Paul's insistence that a functioning body needs diverse body parts reminds us of the need to distinguish and not equate solidarity and sameness. End quote. So we, we know this. It's an, it's, an, it's an obvious fact. And we know that there's this essential transcendent unity, as we've already said, within the body of Christ. And this must be cultivated and upheld and protected and deeply valued. And as we move forward, this is what the Apostle Paul is going to unpack. So if you notice with me, in verses 14 through 20, here's what he's, here's what he's driving at in that, that section. Individual participation in body life is not optional. That's a pretty sound conclusion to make, right? It's not optional. Listen to how he says it, starting in verse 14 of chapter 12. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. This is just a call to every one of us to recognize that individual participation in body life is not, nor is it ever, optional. Now, obviously, if you're prevented by, by providence in some way, whether it's illness or some other m- matter, of course, but 
this idea of what, what he's referring to here is the one who sort of sidelines themselves for some, some reason. Because he says here, if, if, if the foot should say, by their own sort of self-disqualification, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. This, this, is, the, this is the person who sort of sets themselves on the sideline for some reason. It could be that there is envy at the root of some of that. There, there could be a sense of, of expectation that is turned into a sense of entitlement about what they should be able to, quote-unquote, do to serve in the body and what kind of position, quote-unquote, that might garner them in the church. That the use of my gift is not being appreciated. Or it could be a sense of feeling less than. And looking around and seeing people that are using their gifts in different ways and, and you just don't feel like you're a part of that. You don't feel like you have that. You don't feel like you have been invited into that or you don't have what is needed to pull off that area of service or teaching or counseling or whatever it might be. The point here is that it is this idea that you have the option to pull yourself out of the game. And what he goes to is what is the transcendent truth. Just because you decide that that's going to be you doesn't make that you. In the same way that a hand cannot all of a sudden say, I'm just not going to be a part of the body. What happens? If you were to cut off a hand, it's lifeless. Insofar as you are connected by Christ... You are a part of the body. So your engagement in body life is not optional. It's a transcendent reality. You might as well start working it out. That's kind of what you get from Romans for the Apostle Paul that I've already read. It's chapter 12, starting in verse 4. We have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace of God given to us, let us use them. Get after it, in other words, he would say. And he begins to enumerate what those are. Peter kind of has the same kind of injunction toward this in 1 Peter chapter 4. And I love that he sets it in this sort of eternal sort of context, this, 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 this eternal frame Starting in verse 7, he says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything... God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. And amen. If you are in the body of Christ, you've been given a gift by the Spirit. And your engagement in the use of that gift and your engagement in body life is not optional. It's established. Now it's just yours to begin to work out. As I've alluded to in the past, I think a major point of failure in this area, I believe it lies in 
what I would just call a very common miscalculation about the diverse nature of the gifts in the body of Christ, and particularly in the ministry context in which they're used and the various effects that those gifts have. So in other words, we have a certain sort of frame of mind about what constitutes a viable opportunity or a viable venue for me to use my gifts. And you know, I just haven't figured out what that is yet. And I, you know, I just, I'm waiting for the next sort of sign-up list for me to you know, sign up to volunteer in this area. And all that's fine. Those are good things that we need to continue to try to do as a church to make specific opportunities for service in, in the life of the body uh, more obvious and more clear and people can take those steps more tactically. But that, whether or not we do a good job at administrating and communicating those kinds of opportunities, that doesn't change the transcendent reality. That's the point. I mean, do you think that the first century church in Corinth had like a family ministries pastor and a counseling pastor and a student director? And I mean, do you, do you think that they were that sort of dialed in in their administration and their organization of things in the life of the church? But the call was just the same. And it has nothing to do with the fact that you actually have been given a job description. And so now you know what your list of duties are in the life of the church. So no, it's transcendent. You are a part of the body. You have been gifted. And your gift is in- intended for you to serve fruitfully for the common good. And to the extent that you and I are not doing that, something is woefully missing, both for you and for the body. This is a transcendent principle. We looked at this when we looked at the first few verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but the same God, who empowers them all and everyone. This is dealing with the very nature of gift allocation or apportionment, of gift manifestation in various contexts, of gift sort of visible effectiveness of them in some way. It, it, it's, it's varied. And so if we get in our minds sort of set to say, I'm not really a part of the body unless or until I'm able to do this or that in this or that way, that's not what this passage would call you to as a believer. Sadly enough, we've had people who have chosen to leave our fellowship because I believe that At least one thing, certainly probably many others that I just may not even know, but one thing that's at root is that they have some notion about what it means to be a part of a local fellowship in the body of Christ that is tied to something that they have determined, that they think that they need, that they haven't gotten. And so I could could read you emails. Um, Just trust me. I've received emails before where the reason given for leaving our fellowship has been, at least what's been articulated and communicated, has had to do more with someone's, I think, miscalculation of what it means to be a part of the body of Christ than it does anything else. It has more to do with how they were made to feel about a particular thing over some period of time than it does about their sense of identification with Christ and his body and having a gift that needs to be used for the common good and the building up of his people. Gordon Fee says this, There can be little question that the disquieting desire on the part of many to be something in the body other than what they are can be a plague on our house. 
Let me say that again. There can be little question that the disquieting desire on the part of many to be something in the body other than what they are can be a plague on our house. The essential nature, and I don't know why they got out early, but we're not done yet. So I'm just telling you, hang in there. If you need to slip out, go ahead, but I'm going to keep talking. The essential nature and significance of each member of the body is not determined by the activity or inactivity of the member itself. Rather, it is an inherent reality determined by the Creator's design. That's what he's saying here. God has chosen to place people in the body and apportion gifts as He so desires. He says the interchange of this sense of organs makes it clear that Paul's point is not the inferiority of one to the other. The point is the need for all members. Otherwise, some function of the body would be missing. This is what I mean by us understanding the nature of our actual physical bodies and the nature of the spiritual body of Christ. That when we are not involved in using our gifts, the body is missing something. It is missing something. So we need to recognize that this, this idea of individual participation in the body being optional, it's not optional. It's essential. And then secondly, quickly, I'll probably have to come back to this a little bit more, but individual exaltation in the body, excuse me, individual exaltation in body life is not acceptable. It's not acceptable. And I, that can cut a few different ways. That can be someone who is particularly gifted in some area. Let's just say teaching because that's kind of, I mean, I'm standing up here. Everybody's looking at me. So let's just use that as the, as the, the or, or, or preaching or whatever. Something where you're standing up in front of people and they're sitting there listening to you say stuff. I mean, that's like, that's upfront, public kind of thing. And it could be that the individual is indeed gifted, and they're using their gift, but they're also exalting themselves over and above other people in the body. Unacceptable. Unacceptable. The eye cannot say to the hand, he says, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem weaker are actually indispensable. He totally flips that on its head. Or it could be, not that the individual who's got some particular public, more public-oriented gift and is using it in the life of the church, it could be that there are people in the church, not the individual that's exalting them above where they should be. That happens all the time. This takes you back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where they're saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, and I am of Christ. Attaching yourselves and exalting an individual who is indeed gifted and who's indeed called and who's indeed being used mightily in the church and in the body of Christ, but exalting them above what they actually are. The Apostle Paul came back around and says, What is Paul? What is Apollos? Servants. I planted, Apollos watered, but it was God who gave the growth. So this is this is a, a caution against any kind of individual exaltation, particularly in the context of some more public-oriented gifting. And this is what was plaguing the church at Corinth. And I would say that the, the, the larger occurrence of that is not so much people who are the gifted who are using their gifts, but oftentimes it's, uh, it's other people who are exalting them above where they should be, who are trying to prop them up, 
and, and, and hold them up as something better than anyone else in the body of Christ. It's not necessarily the individual who's doing that. We've got to be warned against that. All right, I have, I have quite a bit more, but I'm going to be gracious. Uh, I'll come back to this. I want to kind of expand on this a little bit more next time, this whole matter of not exalting uh, any, in particular, any particular gift or gifted person in the body. Uh, but for now, uh, let's pray and we'll be dismissed.